Chapter 9 of The Pilgrim's Way From Winchester to Canterbury This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org The Pilgrim's Way From Winchester to Canterbury By Julia Cartwright Rutum to Hollingbourne the pilgrim's way continues its course over rootham hill and along the side of the chalk downs this part of the track is a good bridle road with low grass banks or house hedges on either side and commands fine views of the rich kentish plains the broad valley of the medway and the hills on the opposite shore the river itself glitters in the sun but as we draw nearer the beauty of the prospect is sorely marred by the ugly chimneys and dense smoke of the snodland limestone works at one point on the downs close to the thigo inn a few hundred yards above our road there is a very extensive view over the valley of the thames ranging from shooter's hill to gray's end and far away out to sea in the daytime the masts of the shipping in the river are clearly seen at night the nor lights twinkle like stars in the distance the height of these downs is close on seven hundred feet. That of Knockholt is seven hundred and eighty-three feet. On the other side of the Medway, the chalk range is considerably lower, and the highest points are above Detlin, six hundred and fifty-seven feet, Hollenborn, six hundred and six feet, and Charing, six hundred and forty feet. The way now runs past Pilgrim's House, formerly the Kentish Drovers Inn, above the old church and village of Trosley, and the megalithic stones known as Cauldron Circle, one of the best preserved cromlicks along the road. Further on a short lane leads south to Burling Place, the ancient home of the Nevilles, who have owned the estate since the middle of the 15th century, while in a group of old farm buildings at Paddlesworth, formerly Paulsford, we find the remains of a Norman pilgrim's chapel, a fine early english arch the track now crosses a large field and enters snodland an old town containing many roman remains and an interesting church was sadly disfigured by cement works and paper factories here the pilgrims left the hills to descend into the valley below twice before at shelford and dorking they had crossed the rivers which make their way through the chalk range now they had reached the third great break in the downs, and the broad stream of the Medway lay at their feet. They might, if they pleased, go on to Rochester, three miles higher up, and join the road taken by the London pilgrims along the Watling Street to Canterbury, the route of Chaucer's pilgrimage. But most of them, it appears, preferred to follow the hills to which they had clung so long. The exact place where they had crossed the river has often been disputed. According to the old maps it was by the ford at Cuxton, where the river was shallow enough to allow of their passage. From Bunker's farm immediately above Burling, a road diverges northwards to Cuxton and Rochester, and was certainly used by many of the pilgrims. At Upper Halling on this track, we may still see the lancet windows of a pilgrim's shrine, formerly dedicated to St. Lawrence, which had been built into some cottages known as chapel houses. The bishops of Rochester, who held this manor from Egbert's days, 
had a right fair house at Lower Halling, on the banks of the Medway, with a vineyard which produced grapes for King Henry III's table. This pleasant manor house on the river was the favourite summer residence of Bishop Hamo de Hef, who built a new hall and chapel in the reign of Edward I, and placed his own statue on a gateway which was still standing in the 18th century. Another interesting house, Warren Place, lies a little higher up on the banks of the Medway, where the grass-grown track leading from Bunker's Farm joins the main road to Cuxton and Rochester. This fine brick mansion formerly belonged to the Levisons, and the quarterings of Sir John Levison and his two wives had were seen above the central porch. In the 13th century, a great number of pilgrims seemed to have stopped at Maidstone, where, in 1261, Archbishop Boniface built a hospital for their reception on the banks of the Medway. The funds which supported this hospital, the Newark, Newark, not the Operus as it was called, were diverted by Archbishop Courtney, a hundred and forty years later, to the maintenance of his new college of all saints, on the opposite side of the river. The remnant of the older foundation is still preserved in the beautiful early English chancel of St. Peter's Church, which was originally attached to Boniface's hospital, and is still known as the Pilgrim's Chapel. By the time that Archbishop Courtney founded his college, the stream of pilgrims had greatly diminished, and the hostel which had been intended for their resting place was rapidly shrinking into a common almshouse. Maidstone, too, no doubt, lay considerably out of the pilgrim's course, and a great majority naturally preferred to cross the Medway by the ferry at Snodland. Others again might choose Aylesford, which lay a mile or two below. At this ancient town, the Egglesford of the Saxon Chronicle, there was a stone bridge across the river, and a Carmelite priory founded in 1240 by Richard de Grey on his return from the Crusades, where the pilgrims would be sure to find shelter. But even if they did not cross the Medway at this place, where the old church stands, so picturesquely on its high bank overhanging river and red roofs, the pilgrims certainly passed through the parish of Aylesford. On the opposite banks of the ferry at Snodland, the familiar line of yew trees appears again, ascending the hill by Berkham Church, and runs for the upper part of Aylesford Parish, close to the famous dolmen of Kitscotty House. This most interesting sepulchral monument, Kedcolt, Celtic for the tomb in the wood, consists of three upright blocks of sandstone, about eight feet high and eight feet broad, with a covering stone of eleven feet, which forms the roof is one of a group of similar remains which lie scattered over the hillside and are locally known as the countless stones. We have here in fact a great cemetery of the Druids, which once extended for many miles on both sides of the river, deep pits dug out in the chalk, filled with flints and covered with slabs of stone, have been discovered on Aylesford Common, and a whole avenue of stones formerly connected this burial place with the cromlechs at Addington, six miles off. Here, if the old legend be true, was fought the great battle which decided the fate of Britain and gave England into the hands of the English.
but this place the old chroniclers say about the year 455 the saxon invaders stopped on their march to the castle of rochester and turning southwards met the britons in that deadly fray when both kentigern and horsa were left dead on the field of battle ancient military entrenchments are still visible on the hillside near kit's cotty house and a boulder on the top was long pointed out as the stone on which hengest was proclaimed the first king of kent about a mile from this memorable spot in the plains at the foot of the downs was a shrine which no pilgrim of medieval days would leave unvisited the Cistercian abbey of boxley then generally known as the abiter st crucis de grassus the abbey of the holy rood of grace not only was boxley next to waverley abbey the oldest cistercian house founded on this side of the channel the filler proprietor of the great house of clairvaux but the convent church rejoiced in the possession of two of the most celebrated wonder-working relics in all england there was the image of st rumbold that infant child of a saxon prince who reclaimed himself a christian the moment of his birth and after three days spent in edifying his pagan hearers departed this life this image could only be lifted by the pure and good and having a hidden spring which could be worked by the hands or feet of the monks was chiefly influenced by the amount of the coin that was paid into their hands and there was that still greater marvel the miraculous rood or winking image a wooden crucifix which rolled its eyes and moved its lips in response to the devotees who crowded from all parts of england to see the wondrous sight the clever mechanism of this image said to have been invented by an english prisoner during his captivity in france was exposed by henry the eighth's commissioners in fifteen thirty eight who discovered certain engrins of old wire with old rotten sticks in the back of the same and showed them to the people of maidstone on market day after which the ruder grace was taken to london and solemnly broken in pieces at paul's cross the abbey of boxley owned vast lands and the abbots were frequently summoned to parliament and lived in great state among the royal guests whom they entertained was king edward the second whose visit was made memorable by the letter which he addressed from boxley abbey to the aldermen of the city of london granting them the right of electing a lord mayor at one time their extravagance brought them to the verge of ruin as we learn from a letter which archbishop warham addressed to cardinal wolsey but at the dissolution the commissioners could find no cause of complaint against the monks except in the profusion of flowers in the convent garden which made them comment on the waste of turning the rents of the monastery into gillyflowers and roses the foundations of the church where the cistercians showed off their saltiles may still be traced in the gardens of the house built by sir thomas wyatt on the site of the abbey here some precious fragments of the ruins are still preserved the chapel of st andrew which stood near the great gateway has been turned into cottages and the noble guston house where strangers were lodged is now a barn the old wall remains to show the once vast extent of the abbey precincts now these grey stones are mantled with thick bushes of ivy and a fine clump of elm trees overshadows the red tarred roof of the ancient guest-house in the meadows but we look in vain for poor abbot john's giddy flowers and roses 
between Boxley Abbey and Maidstone, stretches the wide common of Penendon Heath, famous in time immemorial as the place where all great county meetings were held. Here the Saxons held the Gemotes, and here in 1076 was that memorable assembly before which Lanfranc pleaded the cause of the Church of Canterbury against Odo, Bishop of Bayer, Earl of Kent, the conqueror's half-brother, who had defrauded Christ's church of her rights, and laid violent hands on many of her manors and lands. Not only were the Kentish nobles and bishops summoned to try the cause, but barons and distinguished ecclesiastics, and many men of great and good account, from all parts of England and Normandy, were present that day. Godfrey, Bishop of Countenances, represented the king, and Agelric, the aged Bishop of Chester, an ancient man well versed in the laws and customs of the realm, was brought there in a chariot by the king's express command. Three days the trial lasted, during which Lanfranc pleaded his cause so well against Rapetius Norman that the See of Canterbury recovered its former possessions and saw its liberties firmly established. The village and church of Boxley, Boslu in Doomsday, so called from the box trees that grow freely along the downs, as at Box Hill, are about a mile and a half beyond the abbey, and lie on the sloping ground at the foot of the hills, close to the Pilgrim's Way. Old houses and timbered barns with lofty gables and irregular roofs are grouped round the church, which is itself as picturesque an object as any, with its massive towers and curious old red-tiled Galilee porch. Next we reach Detling, a small village, prettily situated on the slope of the hills, with a church containing a rare specimen of medieval woodwork in the shape of a carved oak reading desk. Enriched with pierced tracery of the decorated period, we pass Thurnham, with the foundations of its Saxon castle high up on the downs, and then enter Hollingbourne. As Box reminds us of the box trees in the hillside, and Thurnham of the fawn trees in the wood, so Hollingbourne owes its name to the hollies on the burn or stream which runs through the parish. William Cobbett, whose memory has followed us all the way from the Itchen Valley, describes how he rode over Hollingbourne Hill on his return from Dover to the Wen, and from the summit of that down, one of the highest in this neighbourhood, looked down over the fair Kentish land, which in its richness and beauty seemed to him another garden of Eden. End of chapter 9